Well, good morning again. I wanted to share something that happened just this morning, real story. Um, we're getting ready, and by we're getting ready, I'm just getting me ready, and Courtney's getting her and her, her five kids ready. And, uh, you know, every family has, like, the encourager most of the time, maybe not every family, but we have five kids, they're all very different. One of our sons, one of our twins, is such an encourager. He just all the time is like saying nice things, and so this morning was no different, and we, Courtney's getting him dressed, and he just looks at her, and he's so sweet. He goes, Mommy, I just, I, I love your Halloween costume. It's so beautiful. Isn't that nice? And uh, it, it didn't feel so nice because Courtney was just dressed for church, and she wasn't, <laughs> there was no costume. But it was sweet that he would say that, that he would want to say that. I just thought that was so sweet. And... Uh, you know, so he's no longer with us, but, uh, <laughs> kidding. If you're new with us, we've been studying the life and ministry and teaching of Jesus, and it has been so sweet. Jesus is unlike anyone else. There's no one like him. Even non-believers, non-Christians, and then we likely have some in this room, Even you who haven't placed your faith in him and you love him and you know he died for you, there's no one like him. There has been no one that has said the things that he said that has affected the world like he has. There's no one like him. And it's been so great to to look in God's word that he preserved for us and inspired for us so that we can know the truth and we get to hear Jesus' sermons. We get to read what Jesus preached. And so we've been studying the life and ministry of Jesus, and there's, there's more there than what I can, I can unpack ever, even though some of you feel like we're going slowly through this. We could go slower. We could go slower. Uh, we won't, but we could. You can never plumb the depths of God's truth. You're never finished. There's always more to it. There's more for the application to reach in your soul. There's a deeper understanding that you can have. And so there's so much more there. So Jesus is preaching Sermon on the Mount, most famous sermon ever, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. I'll just start reading. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, Jesus has not been throwing softballs, and you that play softball, I know it's not easy, but you know what I mean, like just small loppers, whatever you call it. He In the Sermon on the Mount, even though this is the most famous sermon, do you know that Jesus says things that would get people upset? He would say things, if he were preaching this sermon in this church, would say things that some of you would go... I don't know if we want to hear him preach again. Because he said things, he, he cut to the heart. He was so honest and real, and he showed people how sin and unrighteousness and uncleanness wasn't for those people, but it affects us too. We need grace and mercy. And so he does it again. Last time we talked about the, the murder and anger, he uses the Ten Commandments again. They would all know the Ten Commandments. Every Jewish boy and girl would know. Now, they, Jewish custom, they have a little bit different outlining of the Ten Commandments than we do, but it's the same passages, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, same commandments still. They have it a little bit different organized, but they would know what God's commandments are. They would know what God has said. 
And so he uses the seventh and the tenth commandments. Like last time when he mentioned, you have heard that it says thou shalt not murder. That's the sixth commandment. And then he talks about anger. Well, he's using the seventh and the tenth commandments this time. Now, some of you don't know the ten commandments, and I thought this would be a great day because a lot of kids are in the service, and some of you kids. How many of you kids know the ten commandments by heart? Awesome. Some of you parents, actually, they are disciple makers. That's amazing. Uh, My kids, I'm still teaching them, so don't feel bad. That's not a judgment. Uh, So here's the ten commandments. I want to run through them real quick because you have to understand why these 10 keep getting mentioned even in the New Testament? Why would Jesus bring these up? So the first commandment, a commandment and some of you Mennonite men, I know this is going to be hard for you. Can, you. can you do this with me? Can you like point out your fingers? And let's do hand gestures. We're going to learn the Ten Commandments with our fingers. All right, and we're all going to do this. And if you just look stone cold, like you're not going to participate and you just throw water on the fire, uh, you know, I'll pray for you. But I would like it if you would just... If you would just engage and do this, that'd be great. So, everyone with their hand up, commandment number one, no other gods. Let's say it, no other gods. There's one finger, it's pointing up, there's only one God. One finger, one God, he's it, no other gods. So that's the first commandment. Commandment number two, you do your two fingers, no idols. And you could do like scissors. Like, have you ever seen those people like make uh, whatever that's called, little people? What's that called, Amanda? Paper dolls. Anyway, I don't know what they're called. But they make little figurines. No, sorry, I should never call on somebody. She did not know I was going to do that. Uh, No idols. So do your hands like scissors. Do like scissors. Say no idols. No idols. It's like making idols out of paper. No idols. No graven images. Don't make any image that is supposed to bear the image of God. You want to know why? Because there is no man-made image of God. There's just a God-made image of God. And he made us in his image. So there are no idols. No idols whatsoever. So two, no idols. One, one God, no other gods. Two, no idols. Three, now when you do a three, some of you with fingers that are normal, uh, it looks like a W. looks like a W. And if you put it toward your mouth, uh, the third commandment is do not take the Lord's name in vain. And so if you think of the W as watch what you say, do not take the Lord's name in vain. That may be helping you now i have to i have to say something preachers don't get good brownie points for this because they go against the grain but i want to tell you anyway because it's true if you go to israel you find out that do not take the lord's name in vain has nothing to do with using god's name as a curse word now a lot of people listen we should not use god's name as a curse word but back when moses gave the commandments and he says do not take the lord's name in vain he it wasn't like the Hebrew, the Israelites were walking in the desert and they, they, hit, they stubbed their toe on a rock and said, oh, Yahweh. They didn't do that. They did not do that. For them, people were known by their gods. Geographical locations were known for their gods. And so when God saved the Hebrews and made them his people and called them his people, and he says, you will bear my name, he was identifying them as his people. So they would go out into the, the Mesopotamia. They would go out and they would be saying, I belong to the God Yahweh. That's our God. That's who I identify with. And they were the only ones that only had one God. We have one God, and it's Yahweh, and when God says, don't take my name in vain, he wasn't talking about using his name as a curse word, even though you shouldn't do that, of course. It's sad that we've limited it to that. What he said is, if you say you're a believer in me, live like it. Don't say you belong to me and then live like the pagans out there. 
That's bearing my name in vain. You say you belong to me, you claim my name, but you're a liar with your actions. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. So it's way more than speech, but this just helps people remember, don't take the Lord's name in vain. So three fingers, watch what you say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's how some people can remember it. So no other gods, no idols, watch what you say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And then four, if you do sign language, this is the sign language for day, keep the Sabbath day. So keep the Sabbath day holy. There's one day out of the week as we look at God's work in creation where he kept the Sabbath day. He rested on the seventh day. And so we rest on the seventh day. We rest uh, to signify that. Before sin entered the world in, in Genesis 2, God gave Adam a commandment to work. But along with working, he would also rest. He wanted him to work and rest. That was before the fall. And he wanted him to follow that pattern. And so the fourth is, keep the Sabbath day holy. Five, if you do like a salute, you do all your fingers, honor who? Wow, I have no idea what you guys said. But it's honor your father and mother for anybody that's knowing that one. It's so hard to do. I I heard God in there. You should honor God, by the way. Uh, Honor your mother and father. Now, in our culture, this is a hard one to swallow. Each of us should honor our mother and father. That's so important to God. Honor your mother and father. Honor your mother and father. Six, it's like a stick up. You know, like when you have your hands up? Six, it's like here's the gun pointing to the sticked up ham and he's going to commit murder, which is horrible. But anyway, that's the six. You use the one finger to point. Now, no murder. No murder. Right, we should do good with this one. I mean, we have other sins, but I feel like we, we should be okay. No, no murder. So that's number six, no murder. Five, Honor your mother and father. Four, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. No idols, one God. So that's the sixth commandment. Then the seventh commandment, okay, you have, uh, you have all these people over here, the left hand, and then you have these two. This is Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They're married, husband and wife. Now, these two are not allowed to ever go over here. They stay separated. The seventh commandment, no adultery. No adultery. These two... They never go over here, no adultery, no adultery. These two, they're just together, husband and wife, no unfaithfulness. God wanted us to be faithful. Marriage is an image, a living illustration of the gospel. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is the way that God designed it. Husbands, when we see you being faithful, and it's more than just committing adultery, When husbands, when we see you loving your wife and being faithful to her, you are a living, active demonstration of the good news of God's love for us. And wives, when we see you loving your husbands, you are a walking, breathing, living illustration of the church's love for Jesus. That's what God designed. That's what he wanted. So no unfaithfulness. These two, never over here. Three, we have another W, but we have this hand. We have eight fingers. What do we do with this hand? Ooh, watch what you take. Do not steal. Do not steal. So if you go like that, you're not digging for worms, but if you go like that, do not steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. God designed it that he wants you to love one another. Do not steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. Don't take what belongs to somebody else. That's stealing, and that, that, uh, that's, a, that's against God's law. Uh, so that's eight. You have seven. They don't go together. These stay separated. No adultery. We have six. Stick up. No murder. 
Number five, honor your mother and father. Four, keep the Sabbath day holy. Three, don't take the Lord's name in vain, but it's more than just speaking, and we should really press that because we need to be honoring God in our Christian lives. So don't take the Lord's name in vain. Two, no idols. And one, no other gods. There's one God. That's eight. And then nine, how many fingers do I really have? Ten, thank you. I'm wanting, it's Halloween, okay? You guys can participate a little bit. Uh, How many fingers do I have? How many am I showing you? You know what? 99% 99% true and 1% false is a, is a whole lie. Uh, the best lies that the enemy has created is the skin of a true stuff with a lie. It doesn't matter how much of it is true, if part of it is false, it's a lie. The ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. Don't bear false witness against your brother or your neighbor or your servant. Don't accept a bribe and, and say something that isn't true so that you will benefit or, or to lie and say that someone who did an evil thing didn't do an evil thing. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. That's the ninth commandment. And ten, you have to do the worm thing again. Uh, do not covet. You know what coveting is? It's wanting to take something as your own. Longing and lusting. Covet and lust is synonymous. Coveting and lusting. You're lusting after something that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to someone else. So you can covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's servant, your neighbor's Chevy Silverado. You can covet anything. You can want something and want it to be yours and it belongs to someone else. It's like stealing, but it's stealing and adultery of the heart. And that's what Jesus is bringing out. Do not commit adultery. You've heard it. It's the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that if a man looks at a woman with lust. That word for lust is epithumeo. It's a Greek word that has two words together. That means upon and passion. You're putting your passion and desire upon something. You're, you're gazing at something and you're saying, I want that to be mine. Why isn't that mine? That should be mine. That's coveting, lusting. It's adultery because it's adultery in the heart. So Jesus is, again, using the Ten Commandments on purpose. They're not dead. They reflect God's character. They reflect His law. And and they also reflect something else, our need. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, do not commit murder, someone like me could be like, well, I haven't murdered. I'm okay. I'm righteous. If Jesus says, do not commit adultery, I could say, well, I've been faithful to my wife. I'm righteous. But when Jesus says, yeah, about murder, if you've had anger in your heart, you're guilty. I can no longer say I'm righteous. When he says, yeah, I know you know don't commit adultery, have you lusted after another person? You're guilty. You've committed adultery in your heart. You know the penalty for coveting? There is no social penalty. You just give sin offerings and grain offerings and thanksgiving offerings. You know what the penalty in the Old Testament for committing adultery is? Death, every time. They didn't have sentencing. They just had judgment. Were you guilty or innocent? If you're guilty, it was death every time. So Jesus is using God's character, his law, his morality, God's morals, and saying, look, look, brothers and sisters, look, friends, You are not righteous. And what you thought was just an outward action really begins in the heart. And that's his first point. Sin begins in the heart. 
Sin starts in the heart. Our sin begins not with our action, but with our very heart, which puts us all in check. Sin starts in the heart. And Jesus teaches this later in his ministry, Matthew 15, verse 18. Jesus is teaching them and he's saying, hey, but what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart and that defiles a person. Or he says this, speaking of what comes out of the heart. This defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, slander, false testimonies, thefts. You see how he's using the Ten Commandments again? Slandering, gossiping, murder. He uses murders too. Adultery, sexual morality, use those. Theft, stealing, false testimonies, bearing false witness. You see how he's using God's moral law as showing, listen, this all starts in the heart. Sin begins with a lustful heart. It makes me think of David and Bathsheba. You guys know, some of you know King David. He's in the Old Testament around 1000 B.C., King David came after King Saul, and he was just a war military prodigy. He was so brilliant when he was a teenager. He knew how to conquer a giant and capture people and de- defeat thousands and ten thousands. You know, they sang the song about Saul. Saul defeated his thousands, but David his ten- tens of thousands. David was given a gift to be a warrior. And he lived his life battling against Saul, running from him, not wanting to kill him. And around his 40s, he was just starting to die down. His kingdom was just coming together. He got that loose Confederate 13, 12, not 13, 12 tribes together. He started conquering strategic points in the Mesopotamia area to make a rich nation. And his best friend and his best, wisest advisor said to David, Let us take care of this. You're done retire. He was only in his 40s. You stay back. We will go to war. We, we will conquer them. You've already done enough. And so David stays back. Now listen, any man that is bored, that's a dangerous man. No man should ever be bored. And David got bored. He was a man after God in the heart, but he was bored. He stayed back from war. He should have been out during the, the spring. He should have been out during that season of war, but his best friend said, no, you stay back. And so he's staying in his palace and he looks over and he finds his way into looking into Bathsheba's house. Baths were not just out in the open all the time. And there's debate on that. But anyway, he looked at Bathsheba and lust began to grow in his heart. He didn't just glance at her, he gazed at her. And it produced all these other sins. And it came from a sinful, boastful, I'm sorry, lustful heart. The sin wasn't in the glance, it was in the gaze. And there is a dangerous epidemic of gazing in our community today. It's destructive and it's horrible. Men gazing upon what doesn't belong to them. I want to read an article, it's a little bit long, but you're going to understand why I'm reading this to you. You, you adults, listen up. It's, a, it's an article written by Jeremy Wiles back in August of 2018. The title of it is, Corn is Becoming a Serious Problem for Christian Men. For years, corn was considered harmless, but modern society has made corn so much easier to obtain. Corn is now available in so many forms. Anybody, even children, can simply go into a store and grab a can of sweet corn, cream of corn, corn on the cob, corn chowder, corn nuggets, corn bread, and so much more. It's everywhere. You can't seem to avoid it. 
Highly concentrated corn is now being put in all of our food and drinks. You see it everywhere on TV. You see it everywhere in society. It's now in the form of high fructose corn syrup. It's in almost everything you take. People are becoming hooked because they're even unaware that they're consuming corn. Corn producers have created candy corn to target children. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Frighteningly, Dr. Romero noted that even children as young as 11 years old, and now that's later, now it's 9 years old, children as young as 9 years old have easy access to corn and begin forming dangerous habits, corn habits, because devices that they're allowed without any restrictions, TV, Hulu, Netflix, things that they're allowed to watch, they are now viewing corn all over the place. Part of the growth of corn is the constant bombardment that the public faces from corn producers and their evil. Major companies glut the market with their corn harvests and tease people into buying their products. America is by far the largest corn-producing country in the world and spends billions of dollars every year on corn. You can get addicted to corn. Men who are addicted feel helpless. They don't know how, how to give it up. They're embarrassed. They feel like they have no control. They feel isolated from family and friends. They use their corn secretly, often at night. Some actress, access corn even at work, risking their jobs. Corn addicts admit that their corn viewing cuts into their time with their wives, their children. It creates guilt in their minds, shame. They don't want to say anything. Their fear is if, anything, if anybody finds out, their families would be ruined. And statistics prove their fears to be correct. Corn affects the church. Reports show that 68% of men who attend church struggle with corn. And over 50% of pastors admit to having corn problems. Corn, though, is one of the topics that seems to be taboo in the church. No church wants to believe that any of its men are secretly struggling with corn, creating a stigma that only adds to the problem. Because it is so rarely discussed, men who battle corn withdraw even more into their isolated worlds. Not only do they try to maintain their good man image for society, which is so prevalent in this culture, in Newton, Kansas, the good guy, I'm a good man, I'm a good Mennonite, I'm a good whatever, I'm a good American. They, they have to not only maintain that, but they also have to battle to maintain a Christian image at church. So they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to bring it up, they don't want to confess it to their brother, it's just ignored. And because it's ignored and it's under the surface, the enemy is just having a heyday with it because men don't know how to talk to other men about it. Corn addicts who attend church really face a gut-wrenching struggle. Although they're ashamed, they feel guilty, and they think nobody, they think they can't turn to anybody. Corn will not just go away. The vast amount and availability of corn will continue to rise. It's never going to stop. The corn industry has created such a massive global demand for its products that trying to pretend it is not a crisis is foolish. It is a crisis. It's a true epidemic. It's killing people and families and destroying kids and ruining people's lives. Too much money is at stake, and the corn producers will not let their wallets be affected. They're even expanding their offerings into virtual corn products. The more technology advances, the more corn is going to be delivered in every way man, man, imaginable. I think you all know what the article's really about. Corn is a real issue in our lives, all of our lives. It affects this whole church family, even if you're not directly participating in it. You, not one of you in this room has been unscathed by the destruction and brokenness of corn. My hope and prayer is that we would be a church that knows how to faithfully, in a healthy way, process our sin together. 
I believe this kind of sin is found best in the pattern of Titus chapter 2. The letter of Titus where Paul writes to Titus and he tells him, this is how you are to be in Crete. You, you get all these elders together and you set this up in the church, in the local churches. Older men must teach younger men. Older men have to stop playing toys and being afraid and spending time with younger men and telling them the truth, discipling them, talking about sin and, and godliness and holiness. Older women should be teaching younger women, teaching younger women how to what? How to love their husbands, how to love their children, how to be that, that person in the home that makes it what God designed it to be, that image of, a, of the gospel lived out right there in the home. Jesus spoke, about, spoke up about lust and adultery because adultery is destructive. And I know that there's some people in here that have committed adultery and you're, you know what it's like to feel forgiven maybe. If you don't, God offers you forgiveness. And we've heard stories in this room, on that screen. We've had our own people testify of how God turned adultery uh, and took those broken pieces, made a masterpiece, took what was broken and distraught and dark and bleak and hopeless and brought life to it and did something miraculous. He raised the dead to life. God can do that. But especially those that have experienced the destructive power of adultery will echo and amen this text in Proverbs chapter 6. One who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself commits it. Adultery doesn't make sense. It only hurts the people involved. It's destructive. It destroys men and women made in the image of God. And that's why the penalty for adultery was death. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who slept with a woman and the woman. So you shall eliminate evil from Israel. Now think about that. The penalty for adultery was death. Why did God take this so seriously? Because adultery is destructive. It mars the image of God. It destroys people. It mars the gospel. It's so destructive. Now, before we miss the forest for the trees, the penalty of adultery is what? Okay, according to the New Testament, the New Testament, the penalty for any sin is. If I were to say the phrase, "The wages of sin is," we're we're all guilty, and that's what Jesus' point was. You think you haven't committed adultery? Yeah, you have. You think you haven't committed murder? Yeah, you have. You think you haven't coveted and been an idolater and broken my law? You have. And if you repent, if you humble yourselves and say, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness, that's what brings you to Jesus. That's what brings you to salvation. That's what Jesus was wanting to bring out of these people, lost and saved alike. To the lost person, to you in here that don't know Jesus, Jesus is offering you real, eternal life. You can be forgiven of all your sins, every sin, the most heinous sin, the darkest secret, the worst thing you've ever done. Jesus' blood can cover that and make atonement for that and forgive you 
forever, for every sin you've ever committed. He wants to forgive you. All he asks is that you humble yourself and come to him in faith. Lift up your hands, O sinners. Wash them, cleanse them. Turn away from evil. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Jesus was telling them this so that they would repent. And that's his message to us. Repent. Accept that you are a sinner. Each of us, if we remained under the law, would be guilty and the penalty would be death. But thanks be to God, who out of love sent his son to die on a cross and demonstrated his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made a way that if we would put our faith in him, he would forgive us. Our sin starts in the heart and our sin should draw us to our knees. It should humble us. Every single one of us should know that we are the adulterer. We are the one that deserves the penalty of death. And by faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven. We can't be righteous. We can't be hopeless. And we should question what we choose to look at. That's why Jesus continues this adultery theme, what you look at. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Now, if your right eye is causing you to sin. See how he connects what you're looking at to adultery. If your right eye is causing you to sin, your right eye, the right eye, the right ear, the right hand, the right foot, everything on the right, the, uh, the sit at my right hand, the son of my right hand, everything to the right to, uh, to a Jew was uh, um, a place of prominence. If your right eye is causing you to sin, and he goes on, and we'll have to talk about that next week because you guys take too long to listen. <laughs> is it causing you to sin? He wasn't only referring about adultery. That's why he says sin. Now, I want to ask some personal questions. You don't have to answer out loud. This isn't the place, but what are you looking at? What is your right eye looking at? What are you putting before you? What are you gazing upon? What are you longing for? What are you lusting after? Now, I'm not trying to lose friends here, and mainly I'm talking to the older crowd, but I want to say something, and I mean it. I know I'm a young brother. I don't know half as much as you do, but I know this. Some of you watch the news too much. You watch the news religiously, and I'm using that term carefully. You watch the news, it comes before your eye, and it causes you to sin. It causes you to be anxious. It causes you to have a spirit of fear. It causes you to lose hope. It causes you to divide amongst brothers and sisters in the same church. You're watching the media too much. And guess what? The media doesn't stand for God. I'm not even trying to divide up the media. I'm just being honest and something that you should already know. The media does not represent the Lord almost ever. They're not just giving you facts. They've got an agenda. I'm a communicator. I'm telling you, I don't watch five seconds of it without knowing what thing they're pushing. They've got an agenda, and you guys are watching the news way too much, and it's burning you out. You're not a witness. You're in a spirit of fear. You're being overcome, and you're hearing lies, and you're being, 
You're being controlled and you're being massaged into thinking things partly that ain't even true. You're watching the news too much. I know maybe, I read an article from 1988, I think it was. It was on an oil spill. And I read it and I read the whole article and I had to read it a second time because I was like, I don't know what their agenda was. It was like they were just telling a story. It was weird. It was like, this is just the facts. I haven't read or listened to a news article that was just sharing the facts without an agenda in I can't tell you how many years. You need to stop watching the news. And if God is convicting you at all, I pray that he would draw you to him and say, hey, if your right eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. That's not soft words. Get it out of your life. Some of you, I'll use me as an example. I like to embarrass me because it's better for you and I don't mind doing that. I have something uh, guys have told me. It's called truck lust. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, every single truck I see, everywhere, parked, driving, matters not. I evaluate that truck and I think about how I want to have that truck or I don't really want to have that truck. I dream, and everybody in my neighborhood has a truck, by the way. I've asked God so many times, how come I can't have a truck? Everybody, even retired men that don't even drive have trucks. There's a truck on every driveway. Nice, beautiful Silverado, these Chevy Silverados, 2021 Chevy Silverado, Trail Boss, and, and all these are whatever, and it just so many, it's got the off-road stuff, and it's got the big wheels and the black stuff on the dark green. Anyway, I haven't thought about it a lot, but it's... <laughs> It's, you know, some, there, I have every truck. I actually, one time, Courtney and I, we were going on date night here at the church. We, we met here on Sunday, and we leave, and we're driving to Wichita, and, uh, and I was like, man, look at that trailer, and eventually Courtney was like, stop mentioning trucks, and uh, God has already told me I can't have one. I don't know why. I don't know why he gives it to all of you. I bet half of you have trucks. Uh, anyway, but that's, sorry, I'm whining now, but uh, I, I realized I got to stop I got to stop and evaluate. Why am I looking at trucks like that? I got to stop looking at these Chevy Silverados. They're done. If God, God said no, I'm done. I, I mean, I'm embarrassed to drive my little Chevy Cobalt. It's a little embarrassing. I feel like I can't take it out anywhere. I don't want anybody to see me in it. It's so tiny. I think if a jogger ran into me, I'd be more afraid for my car than the jogger. <laughs> but maybe one day God will let me get a truck. Some of you, some of you sports fans... Some of you sports fans, you know, some of you husbands, I, you know, I'm just going to pick on you because you're a man, you could take it. Your wife says something kind to you, your wife says something nice to you, and she's loving to you, and you're like, eh, cold, I don't have emotions, I'm a Mennonite, you know. <laughs> your wife's trying to be, you're just, I'm emotionally constipated. Yeah, until you look at your phone, and that webpage is loading to see the score of your favorite team. And you get that twinkle in your eye and you can't wait for it to load. Did, did we win? Did we win? I see it in your face. I see it in your face. Or when you watch something on TV and you just can't wait and you get all mustered up something. And some of you, you don't even know what you get emotional about. And you know, you'll grow up one day. That's fine. What are you looking at? What are you putting in front of you? What do you have on your phone? What do you have on your TVs? Is your right eye causing you to sin? And are you committing adultery against God? Because whatever you're looking at comes before Him. That's what your heart desires. That's what you lust after and that's what you long for. And God has no room in your heart.
because you've put something else there and you took it right through the eye. Where is your focus? Whatever holds your attention will likely hold your affection. And your affection belongs to the Lord. God wants your heart. I want to end with looking at what God said about the Israelites in Numbers chapter 15. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel. It's like God would tell Moses, hey, would you talk to these guys? Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. That means forever. You have these special clothes. And they shall put on the tassel of each corner a violet thread. Whoa, God, all of a sudden, God is a fashion designer and he's interested in our clothes and wants us to have a purple thread on all of our men's clothes. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. This special clothing should be with you all the time, and you should see it, and you should remember and think about the commands of the Lord. Why? Why does God want you to have this special thing in your life that constantly causes you to think of God's word? So that you will do them. You will do God's word. You will do them and not follow, and how careful is this, that you would not follow your own heart, and your eyes. See how Jesus is preaching, using this as the background? So that you will do them and not follow your own heart and your own eyes, which led you to prostitute yourselves. You became adulterers, and you cheated on God. You cheated on God with other false gods. You cheated on God with things that leave you empty. The whole book of Ecclesiastes in one sermon Anything else other than God is empty. It's vanity. You can spend your whole life. You can look for it. There's nothing new under the sun. 2,000 years from now, there'll be new gadgets, but there won't be new idols to be made. Everything will leave you empty. There's never going to be a new opportunity. Maybe this will satisfy me. Maybe this will give me life. Maybe this will fill my soul. There's nothing new under the sun. You will not find life in trucks or football or money or family, riches, reputation, America. You will not find life in these things. There's only one that you can find true life in, and that's the Lord Jesus. I want you to put these so that you'll remember them, so that you will remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Now fast forward a thousand years. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 8, But they, this is God speaking, but they, speaking of the Israelites in the desert, who he gave that command to, they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not throw away, each of them, the detestable things of their, of their eyes. Nor did they abandon the idols of Egypt. God preached to them in 1500 B.C., Take it out of your eyesight. It's an idol. It'll leave you empty. Stop looking at it. Remove it from your life. Burn it if you have to. Cut it out. Gouge it out. Get rid of it. But they wouldn't do it. And they were left miserable. They became slaves again. Then Jesus comes along 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years later. He comes along and says, 
If your right eye causes you to sin, take it out. Whatever is causing you to sin, whatever it is you're looking at, what are you focused on? What are you watching? Get rid of it. It's not worth it. It won't feed your soul. Jesus' sermon has been the same the whole time. What are you looking at and longing after? If it's not the Lord, it's not good. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us, and we can't bear the, the shame and the guilt of our sin. Each one of us has lusted after something else that has left us empty. We need your forgiveness. We need the power of your spirit to indwell us and to fill us up and to pour out from us and help us to to get rid of these idols, to get rid of whatever we're watching. Would you bless our church and help us to be a church? Convict our hearts. We don't want to fix our eyes on anything but you. But with man, this is impossible. With you, all things are possible. So we pray, would you help us? Start a revival here in Newton. Help us not to waste our time. We can't make disciples if we're wasting, if we're wasting our time on idols. We pray, would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.